For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he may grant you in accord with the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner self, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the holy ones what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to accomplish far more than all we ask or imagine, by the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I love that Sean decided to launch us with that particular song. We celebrate today the third Sunday of Advent, but we also celebrate <clears throat> last night, we, Our Lady of Guadalupe in this past week, um, the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. And when we think about Our Lady and the example that she gives to us, the greatest example is her yes. Her yes and her attitude. Here I am. I've come to do your will. Let it be done to me. I will follow you. I will do what you say. I just kind of wanted to do a little summary before we launch into this final reflection today. We started our first week really kind of building on, and I was trying to explain the cultures of the amazing parish movement that we have been working on over the past, you know, almost two years now. And it's really just, it's a beautiful way of just kind of looking at three pillars on which we were able to look at all of our ministries, all of the work, all the prayer, everything that we do here at St. Pius X through this lens to even kind of figure out whether we should do it or not, or not do it at all. If it doesn't fit, if somebody brings something to us that, you know, hey, we want to have this huge, great event, but if it somehow in some way isn't connected to these three pillars, then maybe we should say no. Maybe it could be a distraction. Maybe it could be something that's going to, to cause a, a great division. So these, these are great tools. And so just to remind you what those tools are, because you'll be hearing about this. We are going to over-communicate this in the, in the months to come. We have the culture of prayer. And this culture of prayer is something that is really, we have really worked hard to build, not only in the parish leadership team, but in the whole parish staff. <clears throat> and I mentioned in that first Sunday how Pat Lencioni would say, you know, when people come to your parish office, do they meet people who are in love with Jesus? Or have they walked into an insurance office? Or the DMV? Right? And so it was to really have that culture and that face out in front of everyone, the person answering the phones, someone who just really, you know, knows the Lord is incredibly important. 
And as you hear conversations, you hear what the ministry is going on in the, in the parish, you know, are they, are, is this a group of people who truly have a sense of being on fire from their relationship with God? And I can tell you that I have seen that, that, that really kind of grow in the culture of, of the office. Now it's growing in the school, and I want it to grow with us. Last week, we talked about the culture of healthy teamwork. And I, yes, that culture of healthy teamwork, and I mapped out those, those, what those, the, the pillars of that, of that building, that culture is. And I wanted, I did that because I want you all to know. What is the work? What is the process? What, what have we done to become a healthier team? Because most of you are connected to some type of team or another, and this process works. And one of the things that I'm finding all this week, I've, I've sadly heard all sorts of examples of teams that are failing. And it's one of the reason, main reasons is because they're failing because they, they, they don't even have that bottom, that bottom level, which is the need to have a culture of trust. And today we are going to be digging in a little bit about that culture of active discipleship. This is that culture that has probably been one of the hardest topics for us. It's something that we've been preaching about. Bishops have been talking about. Uh, John Paul II, St. John Paul II has been engaging this new evangelization. This has been, there's been so many key like words and phrases that are brought around this whole idea about active discipleship throughout way beyond my my. My priestly ministry, it was very much present in my early monastic life. And we just haven't had enough practical, in my opinion, like meat on the bone. Like we haven't had enough people to sit there and look at another group of people and sit there and say, okay, this is no longer my job. Me, Father Sean. It's yours. And an active and engaged parish isn't always and shouldn't always be solely dependent on the one personality of the priest. What's Father Sean, Father Joachim doing? They should fix this. Well, in the months to come, the pushback the parishioners are going to experience is the question, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? And that's going to be difficult, and it's supposed to be. Because there's nothing about following our Lord that isn't a little messy. It was messy for Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles. And it's going to be messy for us. And that's okay. I would say that's still good news. If we are speaking about ourselves in the same context of Peter, James, and John and the other apostles, we need to remember of what, with the help of the Holy Spirit, what they built. And last night when I preached Our Lady of Guadalupe, and I sat there, I said, this lady who arrived, this mother of our Lord arrived in Tepeyac, converted a nation. 
a nation. Does the church believe, let me stay within my circle of influence, does the church of St. Pius X Parish in this part of Washington County believe that she could do it again? Or is that a one and done? Because it wasn't one and done. I went to Lourdes this year. She did it there. She did it at Knock. She's done it a lot of places. But do we believe that she would do it again? Would she want to use us? That's why I wanted to freak out my mom when I visited her. What if she comes to you, mom? And the other thing that we talked about, and we, I want to continue, you know, the importance of these questions, is really kind of reflecting on those big questions that we need to ponder. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here at St. Pius X? Why am I here in 2021? Why am I here in the midst of a pandemic? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's the trajectory of your life? And where does it end? This is a huge question that I hope that you will end up asking and talking about down the line with all sorts of people, especially with people who might have a very limited level of faith. I think it's an important question it's out there to be asked when the time is right and when it's literally been provided and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And how do we get there? How do we get to where we are meant to go And as we talked about those pillars, that, that pyramid, if you will, of building uh, an active and a, and a healthy team, we talked about the importance of trust, healthy conflict, commitment, accountability, and results. Results being the last one. Remember I talked about it's kind of turning it on its head. I know when I worked for Northrop Grumman back in the day, it was result-driven. It was, you know, deadline-driven. It wasn't about the vice president of that section trusting me and me trusting him. It had nothing to do with it. I start by engaging this culture of active discipleship with this question posed by our Lord to his disciples. And I really do believe that we need to hear this question for ourselves today. It's a question requiring an answer. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Popular question in this area and in our parish, what are the people saying? Not about me, though. Not about you, not about the school, 
What are the people saying? Who is Jesus Christ? Son of Mary, son of Joseph of Nazareth. Who is he? What are the people saying? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 2021, a great teacher, a great religious figure, a guy who really lived a, he had, he had a lot of positive things to say. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? What does your life proclaim? Who do you say that I am? In a homily by St. John Chrysostom entitled, The Light of a Christian Cannot Escape Notice, he states, and we'll need this type of encouragement because there's too many people who sit in pews who simply have the attitude that evangelization, sharing my faith, engaging other people to engage their faith is not my job. It's impossible. If they're not listening to you, Father, why would they listen to me? Do not say, it is impossible for me to influence others. If you are a Christian, it is impossible for this not to happen. Things found in nature cannot be denied. So it is here. For it is a question of the nature of a Christian. Do not say, then, that it is impossible. The opposite is impossible. Do not insult God. If we have put our affairs in order, these things will certainly come to be and will follow as a natural consequence. The light of a Christian cannot escape notice. So bright a lamp cannot be hidden. You are those lamps. There's darkness in the world. You are those lamps. But it's hard to remember all the time. One of the biggest, greatest, I would say, spiritual struggles, spiritual battles that any of us struggle with is our capacity to forget. Our capacity to forget great, mighty deeds that God has done in our lives. We are just like everyone else. What have you done for me lately, God? So we forget. And I had one of those experiences just recently. <clears throat> And I know God uses me in marvelous and amazing ways all the time. But I don't always really spend enough time reflecting and remembering what he's done. And that's where I just, I, I'd like to share with you a little bit of the story of Max Gordon. Just a couple months ago, this book came out. And I was blown away and I was like, what? Max Gordon, life. Loss 
and baseball, baseball's greatest comeback. This is a story of a young man who I worked with in Ashland, Arlie the Mountain. He was one of the varsity football players, baseball players. He's, you know, and so as I mentioned to you many times, I was really involved with the whole city of Ashland. I was the unofficial chaplain to the football team and to the baseball team because the athletic director, the head football coach, and the head baseball coach were all parishioners. And they, they just invited me in to participate in these kids' lives. Well, Max's story is pretty incredible. And it's kind of wild where I sit there and I was here in Ashland and the chief of police reaches out to me because he heard I was coming into town and he asked me if I would be willing to be their chaplain. And I said, sure. So I went through a background check, another background check. After a couple of months of that background check coming to a close, I was finally brought in, I was given a badge, I was sworn in, I was given my, given my on-call number, and I went on my way. First day, on the job, went out to go hang out with Father Jeff Mewson at Sacred Heart to go and have a drink. And my phone goes off. Two young men are coming back from skiing. The older brother's driving. And he goes to pass somebody on a dangerous road. And they are engaged in a head-on collision. Nick, Max's brother, dies at the scene. Max is life-flighted to the hospital, expected to die. They rush his parents to the hospital, and I am called and I am asked to meet the state troopers there to be with them. When I arrive, state trooper is talking about the details of the accident with Max's parents. Nick has died. Your son Max is here and it's, we don't know what the doctors are gonna tell us. As I was sitting there and standing behind the trooper there was also a social worker in the room who was trying to, trying to bring comfort to the best of her ability, saying all the craziest things. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. You know, you just have to have trust, all sorts of things. And Michelle, Max's mother, stood up and stares at me and says, you know my son. She said assuredly, Father Sean was confused. Rarely did he know the families or individuals whom he served in this capacity. The desperation in her face worried him. 
He feared that she might be looking for something from him which he could not give her. Max was on the Ashland football team. She exclaimed further. That was all she needed to tell him. Father Sean led pregame prayers for the football team. He didn't have the names and faces of most of the players down, so he hadn't realized until this moment that he had actually already shared prayers with the boy who lay motionless in the next room. Oh, okay. I do know your son. Father Sean, Father Sean assured her, recognizing in her face that it was extremely important to Michelle that Max had someone familiar helping him through this. She just didn't want him to be alone. Would you mind if I prayed over Max so that he can get through the procedure well? The doctors had to come and release pressure from his brain. Please, will you please? The Gordons were not a religious family, but in trying times, they had faith that there was a higher plan at play, something that would make some sense of all this suffering. Doctors led Stan along with Father Sean through the door to the CCU. Max had suffered severe head trauma during the crash. And as a result, the pressure was mounting rapidly. I felt that God put me there. Looking back, I became very aware that I was going to be an important part of this family's tragedy. This story, when I found out about this book, and I read this story, this was the first time where I actually got some of Michelle's and Stan's insights to my bringing Christ to an impossible situation. Impossible. And this family forever will never be able to forget yeah, they may know my name as Father Sean, but more than that, Max and his parents know the power, the healing power of Jesus Christ. I forgot being interviewed for this book like five years ago. I forgot. But Max needed my help because he was in a coma for the weeks when all of this was going on. Read the book, it's pretty amazing. He was told he could never play sports again. One more concussion would kill him. But he goes on to play football. I would get to coach him in baseball. He would go on to Oregon State as a walk-on, and he would be a part of the team that would win the World Series. And he's coaching kids today, paying it forward. We need to believe it is possible 
That had nothing, very little of that had to do with my, priest, my priestly training, other than the fact that I just made myself present. I was able to pray over Max. He wasn't a Catholic. I just prayed over him. I just prayed my heart to the Lord for him. I did that. You can do that. All the Lord is asking for from us is our heart. Not our knowledge. Not our intellect. Or our constant huge knowledge of sacred scripture. He wants our hearts. And our faith. So when we engage these are people that God hopefully has placed on your heart to go and disciple in the year, you know, in, in the time in the future. <clears throat> One of the things that we have used in my team, what I've used in some of the larger groups here in the parish, is to engage three conversations. And I like to like pray about these things, and I like to, you know, the timing is important, the person's openness is important to these conversations. But the three conversations, the, fir the first conversation is one of intercession. An intercession prayer, which is basically me starting with me, being a little vulnerable. I need prayer. I need you to pray for me. Please pray. Pray that I can, you know, be a better brother to my brothers and sisters and a better son. That I don't get so caught up in the work that I do that I leave my family behind. Could you pray for me for that? It's kind of disarming when all of a sudden you begin by asking someone else to pray. Even somebody who may not have a strong faith will be moved by that. You're asking me for prayers? I'm asking you for prayers. And then... We flip it around and we say, what can I pray for you for? What do you need prayers for? And you can definitely pray right then and right there. You can lead it. Or you can definitely commit to taking those prayers and moving them on later on the day. I like to go and tell my staff that I'm going to pray the rosary. If you have any intentions, let me know. Once you've kind of felt comfortable in that type of relationship with this person who you're trying to disciple and being present to, sharing your faith with, the second conversation is a little different. <clears throat> have a conversation about something about your spiritual journey that most people would not know about. That is an incredible, an incredible conversation. And this is not tearing your heart, not talking about maybe a Max Gordon situation. This is like something just about your spiritual journey. You know, like, you know, I, I shared a story about how my Aunt Pat, who was a Franciscan sister, she was the one who taught me how to pray the rosary. On my mom and dad's back porch, on the green swing, dressed up in her habit. She could have taught my other siblings, but... I was the one. I still have that rosary she gave to me that day. It'll probably end up in my casket. But to share something and then to ask the other person to be able to share something that they, about their spiritual journey. 
Like I said, this does not have to be super deep. But in the conversations that I've had and the conversations I've, I've seen kind of go, just kind of bubble up and, and the fruit that's bared there, it's amazing. It's amazing when you have, especially people been around each other for longer than a decade, all of a sudden learning things like really amazing about the other. And then the third conversation is, it's one of the harder ones, but it is really good. Have a conversation about how you can see God using you in discipleship in your life. A moment or a regular thing. Start with your own answer. So be ready. See, we have an advantage being the disciple. We can make ourselves ready for these conversations. And then when you're done sharing whatever that conversation is, and I don't even want to go into mine because it's, you know, I have to go into, uh, I, I always want to remove myself from my priestly role because I, I do that all the time as a priest. But I usually would like to, I'll throw in, you know, how God is using me at Si Senor or at Golden Valley. He's using me all the time. And then ask them to share how they see themselves in their walk with God. And that might be hard for them to answer. So one of the things I like to go prepared with is how do I see them? How have I experienced them discipling people? And they may not even know they're doing it. Help them. Help them see. As disciples and as we move forward in this act of discipleship, we should be seen as people who are engaging in fellowship, sharing a meal, engaging in a spiritual friendship. We can engage in Emmaus walks, those walks in which we literally are just journeying with each other, sharing our experience of Jesus Christ, sharing our frustrations and our lack of like, I don't understand what this means. I don't understand what's going on. But understanding that there's a bigger picture that maybe we just don't understand yet. Those disciples on the road to Emmaus that Jesus Christ enters into and changes everything. Emmaus walks. And this is something that comes from Matthew Kelly and something that I have found huge and something that I love to do. Me and my brother priest every single Monday when we gather to to just kind of debrief our weekends together, always be ready to share holy moments. It is one of the most exciting parts of our conversation. Where we sit there and yeah, we probably like, yeah, let's talk about the craziness that happened because that's fun, you know. We talk about the craziness that passed on, we talk about how tired we are, and all of a sudden, one of them will just sit there and go, holy moment. And they'll share and they'll be like, ah, listen to this one. And we'll share our holy moment. And then I'll share my holy moment. And it is just like, I mean, and it, it's amazing how when we're in the midst of that conversation, how all of a sudden the, the wait staff at the restaurants want to hang out at our table. They want, to be, they want to be like close. They just want to be close to the conversation. They'll come and f try to fill up your water when your water doesn't need to be filled. Because it feels... It's got power. 
That kind of sharing has power. Engage. Engage helping out the poor, those most in need of help. I shared this with you a little bit from Monsieur Shea from the, from the book from Chrysostom, The Apostolic Mission. In an apostolic age, the church needs to be not less, but more exacting of her members. The distinct lines of her life and vision need to be made clearer, not mistier. By such a distinctive witness, her true influence upon society will be exercised. There is a flip side to this attitude toward church life and witness. Just as the church will demand more from her own members in an apostolic time, this is so important for us to hear. So I'm going to start that over again. There is a flip side to this attitude toward church life and witness. <clears throat> Just as the church will demand more from her own members in an apostolic time, she will expect less from those who are not her members. Let that sink in a little bit. I remember a guy saying, there, I am so tired of the church expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. How do they know? She will not demand of those who are not genuinely converted to a Christian way of seeing and living to abide by the way she orders her life or even to understand how and why she does so. The church's primary stance before an unbelieving world is not the imposition of law, which assumes knowledge of its existence and purpose, but the invitation under an attitude of mercy and hope into a relationship with the living God and incorporation into the new humanity to an entirely new way of being and of seeing one that liberates and that brings meaning and joy. I love that understanding. We need to make sure that those who are not yet converted are not treated as if they are, but we actually approach them with a sense of mercy and hope, with a sense of we're inviting them into something greater and more beautiful and more wonderful and they're going to receive help they've never received before. In an apostolic age, the church's most potent and truest witness comes in this fashion, in her communal life, all aspects of which point to the reality of the invisible world. And what he's talking about there is as a communal life, especially when we are gathered in prayer in the Holy Mass. This is where people have their greatest, we have our greatest encounters with Christ. This is where we are fed so that we can bring Christ in me to the other out there. This is the most important way. When we talk about building community, there is no building community greater than doing so by being fed together by word and sacrament. 
no greater. We can't, even if we were to move everybody who shows up to Mass at 1030, to go over to the community center and continue with the, the best donuts and the best coffee ever, that would be stepping down, not up. That would be stepping down, not up. The best thing we do is in here. That's good, but it's not equal, and it's definitely not better. But it's good. You are being sent. I gave the other two talks because I wanted to have this one. You are being sent because what happens here at Mass, God's speaking to us in his word. He's teaching us. And after he teaches us, he feeds us. And he feeds us so that we can go out there and share the Christ in me, especially to those lost, those lost people who are partly converted, maybe not converted at all, those people who used to be and were baptized, and they're, but they're no longer practicing their faith. I want to engage that person in such a way to where the Christ in me makes the, that, that, that very quiet, maybe very small and very maybe protected Christ in the other to leap for joy. So this whole Christmas, John the Baptist, the visitation of Our Lady and Elizabeth, all are this is what's happening in those moments where we can sit there and find ourselves placed in front of another set of human beings, placed there by God for God's purpose, remembering stories like Max Gordon that did happen and was a reality, and I've got many other stories like this that reading this story reminded me of. And to know that we have to have a faith that what God has done in our past he may very well want to do with us today. Do we believe? We are being sent. We are fed in this liturgy. We are fed in this liturgy to truly be his voice, his heart, and his actions. In 2021, here in this part of Washington County, in our jobs, in our homes, in the restaurants, in the bars, on the golf course, and on the road. 217. That's who we're called to be. After the blessing, this comes from the book, What Happens at Mass, by Abbot Jeremy Driscoll. He wasn't abbot when he wrote this. He's one of my favorite professors at Mount Angel. After the blessing, the priest or the deacon, in some short phrase, dismisses the people, sending them out. So if you're, if you're a person who likes to leave early, stop. You haven't been sent yet. 
But this dismissal ought not to be understood simply as the banal announcement that it's over, you can go home now. It needs to be grasped within the dynamic of Jesus' words. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. This as and so express a huge mystery. Indeed, nothing less than an echo of the Trinitarian mystery in which the Son comes forth from the Father. In that same way, from those same mysterious depths, this assembly comes forth from the risen Lord and is sent into the world. Thus the pattern according to which the Lord entered the world must become the pattern of how every Christian comes into the world after celebrating Eucharist. Now the assembly has been made church. And this is the church in the world. So my brothers and sisters, I simply propose to you the need for us to be about constructing these cultures. Before you can go on of becoming a healthy team, you need to truly have a sense of a real healthy prayer life. So build it. You're confident in that prayer life? Work on your team, whether it's as spouses or families or friends. Work on your team. And once that's done, and God truly has, and you've, you've asked honestly for the Holy Spirit to place in your heart, who is it, Lord, that you want me to disciple? Just one name. Again, we're not talking about going out and converting 97229. It's not what I'm asking. Just the one to whom Christ is going to send you, to whom he himself wants to visit. Remember the 72. He just wants to send you to the person to have a conversation and encounter so that when he arrives, that's going to be an amazing meeting. He wants our hearts and he wants our faith. And he wants us to say yes. So as we, the next Mass you celebrate, and you hear him, and you feed on him, and you are blessed by him, and he sends you, have a sense of entering the mission world, the mission territory, in your life. Because I believe this, the person who he's placing on your heart, you're the only person probably who could touch that individual in the way they need to be touched. Even if they had an encounter with me, I'm not gonna get it done. He sends us because all of us are members of his hands, his feet, his heart, his voice. So on this feast of Our Lady Guadalupe, let it be done to us according to his word.